this is Howie Sego. You may remember me as Riva from Star Trek, The Next Generation, episode entitled Loud as a Whisper. The voice that you are hearing is my American Sign Language interpreter, Paul Burt. And this is Trek Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. This week's episode on Trek Untold is a very special one. Podcasting by its nature is all about sound. You can listen to the show in your home, or you can take it on the go and listen while you're commuting or exercising or going out for a walk or doing whatever you want. But did you ever wonder what it might be to live in a world without sound? How would that change what you do on a daily basis? And what everyday activities would you suddenly not be able to do or have to do completely differently? According to the National Center for Health Statistics, there are approximately 37 million deaf or hard of hearing people living in the United States, with a little over 2 million of those completely unable to hear any sound. And that includes this week's guest on our show. Howie Sego is a veteran actor who also happens to be deaf. You might remember Howie as Riva from the Season 2 Star Trek The Next Generation episode, Loud as a Whisper, a very unique episode in the series that I think is highly underrated and needs to be discussed a lot more. And that episode has an interesting story attached to it that Howie's going to tell you all about today. Beyond Star Trek, Howie is a recipient of a Dramalogue Award and the Helen Hayes Award for Outstanding Actor, among other accolades, and co-starred in the 1998 film Beyond Silence, which was also nominated for an Oscar in the Best Foreign Film category. And he also co-produced the Emmy Award-winning PBS series Rainbow's End. In addition to some TV appearances, much of Howie's career has been on stage, including productions of Ajax and the Persians, directed by Peter Sellers, To Kill a Mockingbird, Midsummer Night's Dream, The Tempest, Henry V, The Merchant of Venice, Hamlet, As You Like It, and much, much more in the classics, as well as some more modern plays, too. Howie also uses his experiences to teach acting to hearing-impaired children, essentially paying it forward and helping a new generation learn new ways to express themselves. I've never actually had a conversation with a deaf person before, and I think a high percent of my listeners have also never had that opportunity. So today, with the help of American Sign Language interpreter Paul Burt, we're going to learn all about Howie, find out how people with hearing disabilities perform, and uncover some truly untold Star Trek stories. I learned a lot of different things making this episode, and I hope that you're going to learn some things too. Not only about Star Trek, but I hope something that maybe you've never really considered before, and that's what it's like performing in a world full of hearing-abled people. This episode is one that is truly in my heart right now, and I hope that you're going to all really, really take something away from this one. But before we begin this week's episode, if you'd like to support this show, please don't forget to follow Trek Untold on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to get the latest updates and all sorts of other fun Star Trek-related content. You can also check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can check out the shows before they come out, know about my guests in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, among other benefits coming soon. Shout out to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, who create 3D printed toys and prop replicas inspired by Star Trek. Their items come in all shapes and all sizes and are always amazing. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platform that allows for ratings and reviews, 
please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review. If you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. Doing any of those things help keep this show growing and allow me to continue bringing you awesome guests and great conversations every single week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining me on the show, we have a veteran performer of stage, screen, and television who was in a very excellent episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, Mr. Howie Sego. Howie, how are you today? Fine. I, I, I'm fine. Thank you. And to remind our audience today, listening at home, the voice you're hearing is Mr. Paul Burt. Uh, he is an American Sign Language interpreter who is here to help us today. So, Mr. Burt, thank you for joining today uh, as well. Uh, hi. Yeah, hi. Uh, let me introduce um, myself. Uh, Howie Sego, and I'm a deaf um, actor. Um, and interpreting for me today is Paul Burt, uh, as Matthew just said. Um, you remember, remember me as Reva uh, from Star Trek The Next Generation uh, in episode Loud as a... Uh, loud as a whisper. Loud as a whisper. I love that title. I've always had. So the voice you're hearing is my American Sign Language interpreter, uh, Paul Burt. And uh, this is a fellow I've used over and over over the years. And he always makes me sound so much better than I actually am. Uh, well, thank you all for joining me here today. I'm so happy to be here today. So uh, let's start with the first question that I like to ask all my guests. Uh, and Howie, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? I'm in uh, San Diego. I was in San Diego. And uh, I had never really uh, watched Star Trek uh, up until then because it was never captioned. I couldn't understand what was going on. I mean, can you imagine trying to lip read all these unusual creatures? Uh, just can't be done. And, and lip reading is a very difficult with just an everyday person. Uh, uh, and we as deaf people can only understand about 30-ish percent of what hearing people are saying uh, in, the, in the best scenario. It's funny. Mouth movements are just so similar to each other. So imagine uh, trying to lip read any of those um, aliens uh, who, who were on the starship. Ay, ay, ay. Anyway, <laughs> back to what you asked me. Um, uh, my my wife Lori, she was a big fan. I not really. I wouldn't really call her a Trekkie, but she was a fan, and she would watch the show periodically. And I would uh, be reading the paper, and she would nudge me, and I'd say, "What is it?" She said to me, "You should be on Star Trek, Howie." Who me? Uh, I mean, anything goes, right? With communication, storylines, concepts. So she was right. So I ended up uh, writing a, a possible ways that other people could communicate for me. And I sent it to my, my Hollywood agent at the time who, who sent it along. And luckily, uh, it was uh, during a writer's strike. 
So basically Hollywood was completely shut down. Uh, all the producers had nothing else to do. So I was able to uh, get in uh, at that perfect time. And so I got a chance to explain my ideas to them. And I heard nothing back from them for, I would say, six months. So I was in, at that time I was in a show in Germany and I received an email from my agent in Hollywood and they said, hey, Star Trek wants you. And I couldn't believe it. Anyway, to, 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 to finish that story. Up, oh, anyway. Um, so they emailed me the script. Well, back then it wasn't emailed. It was, it was a fax. It, 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 it was back in those days, the, the fax just was one long roll, no cut paper. Anyway, so the stage manager came in the office and the place was just covered with rolls of paper because they sent an 80-page script via fax. Imagine how expensive that was back then, huh? People couldn't believe it. I said, hey, that's Hollywood, man. Anyway. So I rolled, I rolled it up, and and that was my the, the first contact I ever had uh, with a Star Trek script was this this role. It, it, I felt like it was kind of like a diploma. <laughs> so can you tell us where were you born? What did your parents do? And what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I was born in Texas, and. Uh, my father was a Southern Baptist minister. Uh, my mother was an, an English uh, and literacy teacher. And then we moved to Washington State uh, to open a church there. I went to what was called uh, an oral school program where they didn't permit deaf students to use their hands at all. It was absolutely forbidden to use any kind of sign language. It was all lip reading and trying to speak. It was very difficult, to be honest. So that's where I began my education. Uh, what I wanted to be when I grew up was I wanted to be a school psychologist. I wanted to work with other children who were going through the same experience that I had, had gone through. You know, I was really lucky because I had two, two brothers who also were deaf. One was deaf and one was hard of hearing. And other, I had other friends with whom I could communicate through my hands. Uh, we had basically home signs that we used. So I wanted to be a school psychologist to work with other children who had been through that same uh, negative experience. Now, when did you first learn American Sign Language, and was that difficult for you to pick up? As, as I said, um, we had basically some our own kind of home signs. Uh, that was pretty limited, right? I mean, it, basically, it, it's called a visual gestural communication system, VG. Uh, I, I never had any kind of interpreters in the classroom uh, until until I got to college, believe it or not. Um, so that was really about, that That at first was, was difficult. It was awkward, really, uh, that, that there was a former, I didn't even know that there was a formal sign language out there. I had only used kind of home signs. So I had to really uh, do my best to pick it up. And I would say, really, it was not till college. Very interesting. Now, I read an interview with ASL coach Jeremy Lee Stone while he was on the set of Sound of Metal. 
and he instructed one of the actors to turn off his voice. Was this an experience you had while learning to sign? Well, I, I think it really depends. Uh, there's some kind of code switching that we do, depending on who I'm speaking with. You know, if it's a hearing person, I will use my voice um, and not sign. And then I, I now I ended up signing with more and more hearing people. I mean, if the person is hard of hearing or they're hearing... I, I will use my voice. Or if it's a person who's, uh, you know, completely deaf, I will not use my voice. I mean, really, it's a range of communication. Now, when did you discover acting? I remember um, I was singing Jingle Bells uh, at a Christmas play at school. No, it was a, a hearing school, right? I mean, there was only seven deaf and hard of hearing kids in the school. And we were singing it for an audience. And we were using bells. As you can imagine, la, 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 ding, ding, ding. And so there's all seven of the deaf students. We're not, we're not, we obviously, we're not keeping up with the music. And the audience was very politely clapping for us. And that was my first real performance. My next performance, I remember, was... I was in a Bible story that my father directed about a cobbler who was waiting to meet Jesus. I didn't voice anything. I just sort of mimed the action of the show and people really liked it. So I thought, hey, hmm, this, this could be something. And my actual start in acting wasn't really until college as well. Uh, my college roommate said to me, hey, why don't you be in the play? And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I can't sign like that in front of other people. What are you talking about? And he said, no, no, no. He was a deaf person who was very good at ASL. And he said, look, I'll work with you. I'll translate the lines. I'll coach you. Just, well, just do the same things that I teach you. And we did that for two weeks. And I thought, all right, whatever. I was, a, I was a big ham anyway, so I might as well do it. So I learned my lines. And the funny thing happened is that uh, at each performance, people would come up to me afterwards and say, oh, my gosh, you sign so fast. It's just so wonderful. And I couldn't understand what they were saying to me because they were signing so fast. Please slow down. Excuse me. Sign slowly. And they were, they couldn't believe it. They were shocked that I was the same person they had just seen on stage for the past two hours, two hours signing in and with expert fluency. And then once I was off stage, I was still uh, just still learning. So I thought that was cool. So that, that was really the start of, uh, of my act against gotten me to where I am now. Now, I read that you went to the National Theater of the Deaf to learn more about acting, and I'd like to know, uh, what's something that you learned that a hearing-abled uh, acting school would really never have to teach, or something that they wouldn't even think of covering? Huh. Interesting question. Before that, I already had... Well, before that, I had had a lot of experience with the theater, uh, working on my own, working with other actors, uh, doing some community theater, so to speak. Uh, I think the thing that I learned from NTD was uh, how to use my body more. 
to really fully immerse yourself uh, sign more more lar- in a more large way and making more artistic choices in the signs you use for example i guess basically to project on stage my feeling is that actors who are deaf or are hard of hearing perform with more physicality uh, and it can often be a more visceral and emotive way to show things than just using sound. Uh, how would you define the way that you perform versus a person who is hearing abled? Well, as I said, I think that you are correct. Uh, there's more physicality. You take advantage of visual aspects more. Uh, you can illustrate concepts uh, more clearly through movement. I've had a lot of actors in shows that I've worked with, and they or they've seen my shows, and they always say that what I was doing was much more clear to them. Many we have a joke that many we have a joke that a lot of hearing actors only act from the mouth up. That's all of their whole acting area right there. They're, they're talking heads, right? Just a box. Well, deaf people are they're all in. Their whole body's in. I mean, you can, you can see I'm moving a lot in my seat while we're talking. I'm not sure you can see it on Zoom, but I am. I should say that uh, it, it's not the case with all deaf people. Not all deaf people are great actors. We have a lot of deaf people who are... Um, basically mundane sort of uh, people who who couldn't act to save their lives, uh, but just like hearing people, right? There's plenty of hearing people like that. But hearing people do tell me they learn from watching, and they, uh, they when they have to voice for me or other deaf characters on the stage, their eyes become much more attuned. Now, you mentioned that you were doing community theater and theater performances like that, and I would imagine that a lot of those performances are with actors who are hearing-abled. Uh, so I'd like to know, what's it like working in that type of setting where you have a disability and everybody else is kind of having to work within that? Well, I think the, the most crucial part is that the people have the right attitude, and they're not afraid to interact with us. With or with me, and, and to communicate, uh, and to communicate with us on an appropriate level. Many people will A lot of people will basically people listen to the interpreter and talk to the interpreter, and talk to the interpreter instead of looking at us directly. You are doing Like you're watching me around. You're looking at me. I'm talking to you, and you're looking at me. But a lot of hearing people just. They just focus on the words. Where's the voice coming from? I'm going to listen to that. Uh, that's a, that's another, another kind of joke, right? Now we had we had we had a box around the head. Now we have a box around the ear. Um, so yeah. Now, a lot of your career in the theater has been Greek classics. It's been Shakespeare. Why does this work appeal to you so much? What what is it about the classics that have really got you excited about acting? Well. Well, first of all, it's because that's what they offered. <laughs> sure, I'll take that job. You offered it to me? Sure. And secondly, the reason I enjoy doing Shakespeare 
is that it's such a linguistic challenge. You have to translate from the original Shakespearean Old English into modern English, and then you have to translate into ASL. So it's a, a there's basically three modes of communication there, and that, I love that. Trying to find the exact right way to, to make or to create some artistic signs that will uh, convey the highly artistic uh, images that Shakespeare was going for. Too many people can't do that. And there's not a lot of people out there who can do that. I mean, there are more now, but there didn't used to be. Yeah. I mean... I mean the the language is just uh, is just artistry in itself. Now you mentioned that a lot of folks will often talk to the interpreter and not to you, and that's actually something that happened in the Star Trek episode we'll talk about a little bit later on. But I'm curious if acting was a way to help you feel seen. Yeah. Yes. I think that's a very good observation. I felt like it was a really good opportunity to uh, expose the hearing audience uh, to the value of deaf people in general, as well as deaf actors specifically. Yeah. What would you say is the most challenging Shakespeare role you've played? Uh, I mean, they're all challenging, right? Of course, that goes without saying, but... um, Exeter, uh, which was in Henry V, I think. I get my Henrys mixed up, but I think it was Henry V. I played the bodyguard to the king. And there's one scene. He gives me a message that, that I need to take to France. To to the spoiled uh, brat French king. Anyway, so I go there and I have this, I have a long cloak and I have, you know, boots and all kinds of complicated, heavy period costume. And this guy who I have to deliver the message is so spoiled and I get so cross. And I had with me uh, a woman who was my basically my voice, and she was disguised as a young boy. And at the moment when I uh, lose my temper, I told her, don't voice anything. Don't say anything. Just be still. So I go up on stage, and I gesture to the prince. And I... And I'm yelling at him using very strong physical language that even the audience was able to understand what I was saying. Nobody was voicing what I was saying. Just I was out there saying, you know, this and that. And at the end, the prince was basically uh, shocked. And I left. And the audience would always clap after that, after that moment in the play. It was, I think it was, it was a shock at the beginning. And, and my assistant, what I do, I go under the, under this uh, platform uh, to get ready for the next scene. 
And you know, oh, you could hear the applause while I was going under there, and the assistant could, he- and I could also feel it. And we made a game out of it to see how much applause that particular, what would you call that level of applause tonight? Was it a six, an eight, a ten? Oh, maybe we'll, let's work harder. Let's see if we can get a better number tonight. So that's really the, the, the part that I was most proud of because you know, I was a challenge to communicate to the other actors and also to the audience uh, without the benefit of somebody voicing for me. I would say that's one of the uh, I have my, my sweetest successes, I would say. Might be I mean, I could I could sign in a strong way, but when you put that aside, and when you basically strip it down to just the basics, it has a huge impact. And by the way, Howie, uh, that is the Duke of Exeter from Henry V, so you, sir, know your Shakespeare. I, I thank you. Thank you very much. I'm glad I got it right. I'm glad I got it right. <laughs> I didn't know that you were were, uh, were such a Shakespeare nerd. I wish I could say I was. That's just the power of Google. Oh, uh, uh, look at you. You should have kept that a secret. I would have been impressed. <laughs> Thank God for Google, huh? So it's very curious what you're telling me about the way you're performing, and especially the role you just mentioned. Uh, and I'd like to learn a little bit about how deaf people or people who are hard of hearing develop a visual performing vocabulary. I don't think we really have I don't think we have a, a, a unique kind of performing vocabulary among each other. Amongst each other, really. And as I had said before, uh, you like to keep your hands up. You don't, you know, cross yourself. Uh, you keep your, you hold your space. You use both hands wisely. You know, if there's something happening to one side, to the other, you, know, you keep it separate. You don't cross over. I mean, we translate what uh, hearing people use, the uh, stage directions, the lines. I mean, I think it's pretty much the same. There's one thing I learned later on in my career is uh, when I, the phrase, I went up. I didn't know that. I, I really didn't know that until uh, just a couple of years ago. What do you mean you went up? You forgot his lines. So it basically is your eyes rolling back and trying to remember the lines. Oh, geez, I went up. I didn't know that that was, that was called. I mean, there are some phrases that uh, I may not know. But as far as a vocabulary, yeah. What are some of the struggles that you would face typically uh, performing on stage that a person with hearing would not? When I think of seeing a stage performance, I, I think of how people u- will use sound often as a cue of where to go or what to do next. Uh, so what are the kind of things that you have to deal with when you do a performance? Um, uh, it, mostly it's based on movement and blocking. Uh, when an actor reaches a certain uh, location on the stage, that's my cue. Or when an actor, you know, turns a certain way, I know that that's my cue. I mean, sometimes I count. 
One, two, three, four. One, two, three, <laughs> go. And then it's my turn to say my line. That, that does happen a lot in Star Trek. Uh, in that episode, I was supposed to communicate with uh, with my other with another character through my mind, but really I was supposed to be able to hear something. Sometimes the interpreter was in front of me, you know, behind the camera, and the interpreter would say "go," but other times I had to just count one, two, three, four, five, six. What did you say? Oh. <laughs> I want to talk about one other role that you had before we talk about Star Trek, uh, and that would be when you worked with Peter Sellers, who I should mention is not Inspector Clouseau from the Pink Panther movies, but uh, a very forward-thinking stage director by the same name, different spelling, uh, who cast you in the lead of Ajax. Uh, I'd love to hear about your time working with Peter on this production and how important you felt this role was to your career. Yeah, it had uh, incredible. I mean, it really had an incredible impact on my career, me and my life as well. Uh, I had worked with Peter in a few short, doing a few short plays, and he remembered me from that, and he asked me five years later, and I thought it was weird because the character uh, is, 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 is a, a military commander. And I thought, how, you know, deaf people... Uh, don't function as commanders in the military settings in real life. And well, his argument was that this it was a Greek play. Uh, written by Sophocles. And it was very relevant to, to the modern world back then and now as well. About the miseries of war, uh, the human cost, the cost to lives and so forth of war. And he also said that the Greeks did communicate with their hands on stage uh, because the audience was so massive uh, that they had to have some hand motions. When you there's there's Greek uh, murals, historical paintings uh, that show that kind of thing. So, all right then, I I I I took him at his word, and I have to tell you, it was a, a wonderful experience to work with him. He's a very creative guy. He thinks big. He thinks beyond the scope. He used me as the deaf person, the deaf character, the military commander who had lost most of his senses, that character, his mind, his body. He was really, he was uh, losing his mind because of suffering the cost of war. So I became deaf in my mind. And then I had a chorus of soldiers who were with me, and they would do the talking for me. Each one, one would speak for me when I was a certain kind of mood. If I was angry, there was that person. And if, if there was another person who would would voice for me uh, when I was in a poetic mood, 
So all of my soldiers took turns uh, doing the talking for me. And that was absolutely breaking new ground in theater. And also using a deaf actor in the first place. And then the idea of how would we can make it possible for deaf people to do that kind of stage work. So that was one idea that I pitched to Star Trek, which we'll talk about in a while. But uh, a lot of people said that that play really uh, opened the eyes of many hearing theater artists, uh, movie artists, to the idea that deaf people... uh, we can take advantage of their of their skills and abilities, and it was really groundbreaking back then. I mean, now we have so many more young people who are showing up, uh, and it, this is what I'm talking about was sort of groundbreaking in the past. I read a review for the show which said that uh, Howie Sego is the Laurence Olivier of Greek tragedy, which you know makes me wish I could have seen the show even now. I'd like to know, uh, how do you find the character when you're doing these types of shows? You know, I, I feel like with a person who is hearing able, they will have a different perspective than someone who is hearing disabled. Uh, and their interpretation of the character might be different based on those life experiences. So when you're getting ready to act in a show and you're trying to find who this character you're playing is, what is your process to discover that? Well, first I, t- I do the translations. I do that first with the language because I really need to uh, be ahead of everybody else. Uh, The other actors have their lines already memorized on their first day of rehearsal, and I'm still working on translations, and that's a slow process. takes a lot longer. And then I find my character through the words and the language, and then I read up. We didn't have Google back then. Uh, I had to go to the library and borrow books. uh, and we, I would work with a dramaturg there are, and also the other actors. I, I, I never had any formal uh, acting training. I don't have an MFA in acting or anything like that. I just learned from other actors. Oh, this is what you do. Oh, that's how this works. And that was especially true at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, OSF. Um, my first day of rehearsal, I showed up with my script in hand. And there was uh, no fear Shakespeare. Uh, it's a very simple uh, translation. And, and I saw it. the other actors were bringing seven or eight books with them, these big stacks of books. And I just have this one little thing. And we had some conversations uh, during breaks. And I would try to join in the conversations, but it was very difficult. I mean, I had my interpreter there, right? But uh, it wasn't easy. And then also, you know, the director. I would talk with the director about my character, about what their vision was of it. And often I would find that uh, my translation was, was not the right one. So I would have to uh, retranslate and go back again uh, to suit the new information that I had learned since my first translation. Howie, let's beam into our Star Trek discussion. You played Riva, a mediator trying to negotiate peace among a warring planet in the Season 2 Star Trek The Next Generation episode, Loud as a Whisper. And you already talked a little bit about the origins behind this episode, but I'd love to hear, did you get to actually meet Gene Roddenberry at this point? Yeah, I did. That, I felt so honored that I was able to meet him. He came down to the set uh, when he heard about my work. 
Tongue. He was a big, tall guy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. R- with ruddy complexion. I shook his hand. And he said, my secretary asked me to ask you if you're married. Yeah. Who, me? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I am. Too bad for Too bad for her, he said. Talking about a secretary. <laughs> What a question. What a question, right? <laughs> but a very sweet guy. Very gentle soul, yeah. So you're on the set of the Enterprise in this episode. You're in the transporter room. You're on a planet. Uh, you're on all sorts of different places. Lots of very big sets and lots of green screens. Uh, how did this experience working on this show differ from anything else you've previously done? I mean, was this completely new to you? I don't remember seeing that much green screen activity. We did have, um, there was a set built. It was wood and, you know, artificial rocks and all that kind of stuff. And we'd move from location to location on the set in this gigantic warehouse. So big. It was weird when you'd move to the other room. The location. Yeah. You know, this is there. This is this location, and this is this location. One thing that was different. What? One thing that was really different. There was no rehearsal. No rehearsal at all. You just would jump in and do it. I mean, they had their, their the main cast. And I do remember. I have a picture somewhere. One time we sat around talking about lines. I don't remember if it was we actually ran the lines like a rehearsal. I may have been too awestruck to really pay attention to what was going on. Oh my gosh, it's Patrick Stewart. Oh my god. It's Jonathan Franks. Oh it's Deanne. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I really liked uh, your outfit in this episode. And uh, I also liked how your hair made you look like this very noble sort of lion. Uh, and I'm curious, when you were going through this episode and, and it was pre-production, uh, did the look of the character ever change? Or were you ever meant to be an alien wearing lots of makeup or anything like that? No, it, it was all, it was the same. I, I had red hair at the time and I was playing a character in that German show I talked about. And that we, I came over on a break. We had two weeks off, and they fit me into their shooting schedule. No, there was nothing, nothing, nothing extraordinary. Uh, I did have a, a silk, silk-like material gown and jacket, and and it would, it would get, it would get wrinkled all the time. So there was a, a, a woman with. With like a blow dryer would come up and blow the wrinkles out of my outfit. <laughs> my, my neck was getting hot. I, I, I was telling you, it was my. I was getting heated up. And you know where. But that would smooth out the clothes. I'm glad we talked about Ajax uh, because it, it seems like the chorus that was with you in Ajax is very similar to the chorus that follows you around in this episode. Is that where the idea came from? Absolutely, it was. Yes, exactly. In the beginning, in the beginning uh, yeah, we pitched the idea 
<laughs> and when I wrote down, uh, I, I made notes of different techniques to provide a vocal narrative for the deaf character, meaning me. So my theater experience, by that time I had been doing theater for 15 or 16 years, and I took that experience and what I had seen other folks do, and I turned that into the producers. Rick Berman was the producer, I think. And he did like the idea. That, that was, well, I think that was one of his, the idea that he liked the best. That was the maximum amount of my involvement with the script. And then they just took and ran with it. I just got credit for the idea. <laughs> but the writers did a great job with it. There was one. Um, there was one issue that I had a problem with. Um, they they wanted me to wear a headpiece, as I said, and you know communicate through that, similar to uh, 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 Gordy, who wore the, the, the those glasses. And, and by accident, I took it off, and I, and I, it was, it was going to break, and then I was not going to be able to communicate. Overnight. So overnight, uh, Dan did some research and learned that. No, uh, Learned how to teach me to speak. Overnight. So overnight, I could talk. That was a plot, and I said, "No, I can't do that," because. Remember uh, my upbringing and all these children that go through all these struggles trying to learn to speak. And, uh, and only very few deaf people can learn to speak clearly, and it's very rare. And I just didn't want to uh, give people the false idea that children can learn to speak easily overnight. It's just not true. I couldn't be a part of that. So that was the one cultural thing that I just uh, could not, could not uh, perpetuate that, for that false uh, idea. So I was, I answered that in Germany. And my Hollywood agent said to them, said to me, you know, you're going to lose this job if you feel that strongly about this. And I'm like, hey, I just cannot live with myself if that's how it's going to go. And the next day she called me through an interpreter and she said, you lucky bastard, Star Trek completely understood your point and they still would like to work with you uh, and we'll, let's get everything all set up. I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I, I was unknown at that time. So there's a part where you're having a dinner date with Marina Sirtis's character, Deanna Troy, and you're communicating to her without an interpreter. And there's also a scene later where Data is doing some sign language, where he's doing things like, this is blue, uh, this is the blue ocean, this is the blue ocean over a sunset. Uh, so I'm curious, was that actual American sign language? <laughs> that was That was his own sign language, words he made up himself. It was an awkward moment at the beginning. Uh, the the line producer asked me to teach um, Brent some sign language, you know, for our scene. 
He did not want to. He didn't want to learn American Sign Language. He said no. He thought he should just come up with his own because he's from another universe or something. And I said to the producer, you know, I agree with him. He's different. He lives in a different universe. So, you know, it, it, my sign language on my planet would be different than his. And they're like, okay. And then he looked at me and said, all right, good job, Howie. So, anyway, I agreed with him. He made up his own signs. And so many deaf people said to me, what is he saying? What is he signing? It's like, I don't know. It's his, his data language, not mine. You're not anything. You're not supposed to understand him anyway. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Deanna. I went out with Deanna. And I not dying. I, you know, I didn't sign. Well, maybe just a couple of signs, but again, it was more of the uh, visual, gestural kind of communication, uh, VGA. You know, gesturing things out. One of the voices uh, in this scene was getting too into it. I was like, excuse me. And they backed off. They were kind of getting too close. Excuse me. This is uh, my private interaction with her, with Tien. Back off, buddy. She, it's funny. Deanna was so nervous during the scene. But I assure her, you know, we took it slow. I think it went pretty well. I would agree. It's a really good scene. And I I really liked your chemistry with Marina Sirtis. So I'm curious also to know what it was like working with the cast. We mentioned having scenes with Marina, with Brent Spiner, Patrick Stewart, who is also a big Shakespeare lover. Uh, Did you get to spend any time talking with any of the actors off set? Did you feel any chemistry with the entire cast? Yeah. Uh, time when we when we were on break, everybody would uh, you know go off to their trailers, um, and I had a trailer too. Sometimes uh, we'd have a chance to talk, you know, just a little bit in between in between takes, you know, when they need to make some kind of technical adjustment or something. Uh, one thing that I did learn from. Um, Jonathan. I think it was Jonathan Frank. F- Franks. Frank. I can't. This was his sign because he had a big old beard. I made a mistake in one of the scenes. I made a mistake in one of the scenes. I kept going. But I kept going. I said, Jonathan, I said, I hope they don't use that in the scene. They hope they don't use that take. And Jonathan said, if you make a mistake, swear. That's the secret. Swear. Long and loud. Excuse me? Why? Then they can't use the take. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. That's something I've learned. So if I make a mistake, I have to really belt one out, you know? And Jonathan looked at me like, yeah, you got it, buddy. Thanks. That's a very good lesson for all actors out there. So I learned so many important things from Star Trek. <laughs> when you up. Yes, make sure you swear every time you make a mistake. 
Now, there's a part early on in the episode where Riva admonishes Captain Picard for not speaking directly to him, which is something we talked about a little bit earlier in the interview. Uh, and there's also, you know, a part when you lose your course, Riva says that he feels very alone. Uh, so how much of this episode was on a very personal level to you? How much of this was things that you actually went through in life and felt? Yes, I, I did use my, my own personal experience uh, growing up. Uh, uh, even to this day, um, I have part of me that feels feels lonely communication-wise. I mean, I have a hearing wife. I've got two hearing boys. Uh, they talk to each other sometimes without signing. I mean, nothing, not meaning to uh, ignore me. Uh, but it just happens. People just do that. And like when I go out for a walk with the family, it's hard for me to sign as, and watch where I'm going at the same time. But it's much easier for them. Um, I mean, I don't in any way forbid them from talking to each other. I'm not that kind of person who's like, you have to sign every every t- minute of the day. I mean, just let them enjoy the, their time together. So I use that as well in Ajax uh, when, I, when the commander feels alone, even though his wife is right there and the soldiers are all right there, he's lost alone in his own head. So I often used uh, those experiences uh, in my acting. Yeah, having just rewatched the episode again recently, uh, you know, that is something that I kind of felt on a personal level, too. And granted, my life experience is very different from yours, but that sense of loneliness, uh, that kind of resonated with me as well. Uh, and something else that resonated with me was a line that was said in the episode, which was turning a disadvantage into an advantage. Uh, what did you think of that line? Was that something that you came up with? No, no, no I, I, I that wasn't my uh, idea. That was the writer's work. And I applaud them for that. Yeah, that that wasn't that wasn't my uh, my my dialogue. That was completely theirs, and it really it's a great line. Uh, the the quote that uh, Patrick, uh, uh, this is his sign because he's bald. Uh, in an interview about his experience working with me as a deaf actor uh, for the L.A. Times. They published a quote in the paper that I always remember. And I think it was so well stated. I'll go ahead and read it to you. When you are dealing with an actor who has that authentic handicap, that person carries with them an authentic tension around with them. That is something that never dissipates. It's always present. Whereas an actor without the handicap, that is necessarily going to fluctuate. And I think all the actors in the show or sensitive and aware and sometimes even nervous of that very idiosyncratic tension. And tension is what makes great theater. Unbelievably beautiful. So well said. Fantastic. 
I use that when we have to fight our battles with certain films or roles where they try to select hearing actors to play uh, deaf parts. And we, we have to tell them this over and over. Now it seems like there's more opportunities opening up. But this is from 1988, believe it or not. It's still happening today. And it's still happening today. That's a very profound way of looking at it, as Patrick Stewart said. Uh, and something else I really want to ask you about, too, is, you know, Riva, his character has so much power in everything he does. And when I was watching it, I felt like there was a lot of inspiration from Gregory Peck uh, in To Kill a Mockingbird. So how did you find the character Riva? Were there any other literary or theatrical things that you pulled from to create the Riva? Uh, no, I just reached deep inside and uh, found it there. I really feel like I, it was pretty authentic. I didn't feel like I didn't have to make up anything. But now that you mention that, uh, I have a new thought that I didn't use my voice at all to communicate in that. And I had these three people who were speaking for me. But the question is, how do I know if they're interpreting properly for me or not? Are they saying what I said? I mean, are they saying what I'm saying? Uh, is Paul voicing for me now? Is he interpreting for me properly? Most of the time I can tell because uh, if you make a joke that I think is funny, and then if nobody laughs, I think, ah, it's the interpreter fucked up. That's what it is. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. <laughs> This is a question I have that would relate to acting on stage and I guess on television as well. You know, when I speak to a lot of actors who are hearing able, they say that an important part of acting for them is communicating with the audience and responding to what they respond to. Now, as a deaf actor, you don't necessarily have that ability to do that. You can't necessarily see them either to see what's happening. So how does that affect your performance? Does that affect your performance? That would be... That's especially true on stage. With film and TV, not so much. Uh, you can stop and tell the actors to wait longer at that moment. In theater, it, in rehearsal, when you perform every night, uh, there's more response. You, you have more response from... Remember, I told you that story about how they, how much they clapped when I was already gone. Uh, they had clapped afterwards, but when when I've done you know comedic bits on stage, I look at the eyes of the other actors. You know, we stay in place during the laughter or clapping or whatever, and then we give each other a signal, and then it's time to you know go get back into the show. So, but most of the time, I just uh, act through the laughter. Another interesting role that you had uh, was to kill a mockingbird, uh, and you played Bob Ewell, who is the father of the alleged victim, May Ella. Uh, and having a deaf actor perform this role really completely changes the story in a very unexpected way, and it adds a lot more depth to a, a piece that's already very complex. Uh, I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about your role in this production uh, and what your interpretation of the character was. Yeah, right. Yeah, you're right. Um, 
A deaf actor playing that role really does add a, a whole, uh, add multiple layers of uh, meaning to the role in the in the play. The first thing I had to figure out was how much uh, formal uh, education uh, Bob had growing up. Did he grow up, you know, with oral philosophy, with no sign language allowed? Uh, we decided that uh, with, without sign, but he did have home sign language uh, with his siblings that he would gesture out. But they could only talk about a limited amount of things. And then he went away to a residential school for the deaf. But was expelled after a year because he was such a troublemaker. He thought he could act the same way at school as he could at home. You know, just do whatever whatever he wanted to. So he got, he gets thrown out, and they came back home. And then eventually, you know, his daughter is born, and we get to the play. So we figured that he was Martin a marginalized character. And what made it worse was his drinking. All of his alcohol he drank. And also his lack of communication added a lot of fuel to his anger. When his daughter was born and gets old enough, he forces his daughter to interpret for him uh, in, in their sort of homemade sign language. And that was really was so powerful in the courtroom. He forces his daughter, who's 20 years old, to interpret his lies to the judge and to the people in the court. So the daughter knows that it's not true, but she she's in a conundrum. So she's interpreting his lies. Yeah, she's interpreting his lies. And uh, in addition to that, and she knows that uh, she's lying as well. And she accused the black fellow of raping her, and that did not happen. So you have that, plus you have the father, and all these other things. It's really a lot. So it really adds so much uh, to the emotional toll. Uh, it takes it really takes an emotional toll on the daughter. And Bob, no. And Bob, he knows. He aware, he's aware that that is happening with his daughter, but he doesn't care. He's just using his daughter as a tool uh, to strike back at the world. I just find it very amazing, these interpretations of the characters. Yeah, it's powerful stuff. Yeah. One memory I have is uh, there's the table uh, looking upstage to the judge who's sitting up there, and the jury is sitting off to the sides, and my back is to the audience. And when I'm sitting, when I'm not involved in the stage, I'm still in character. I have to act through my back 
So I have to be hunched over and showing anger as I move about. And I was exhausted at the end of that show from acting with my back. What would you say is the role that you are most proud of performing in, whether it be on stage, screen, or television? One that had the most impact, I really think, was Ajax. I'm really proud that I was able to make that work. But really, I am proud of all the roles that I've had, that I'm able to do all of these different things. Because really back then, uh, deaf actors really didn't work much. I mean, the fact that I've been able to continue to have opportunities all this time. I'm proud of that. So I, I am proud of that. And I'm also very thankful for my wife, Lori, for her support in my artistic work over the years. Uh, without her, her mental, emotional support uh, to really keep me going. And also her idea for Star Trek, too. So you really, you can thank her. Well, thank you, Lori. <laughs> so the show we're doing today, Trek Untold, it's a podcast. And by nature, this type of show is not exactly the most friendly to people who are hearing disabled. Uh, so a lot of my audience or most of my audience are people who can hear. Uh, and, you know, doing research for this episode, I really felt like I learned a lot about the deaf community, a lot of things I didn't know before. Uh, so I'd love for you to maybe tell us something that you wish more people who are hearing abled uh, would understand about deaf people. Yeah. Sure. Yes. We wish that hearing people would not be afraid to use their hands to gesture with us. Come on, just try it. Are you hungry? You mean you could point to your stomach? Uh, there are gestures that people know that they could use. Don't worry that the, de that the deaf people will not bite. We really appreciate your effort. Also, learn the ABCs. Learn how to fingerspell. Learn a few simple signs. Take a sign class. We really appreciate whatever you can, whatever you remember to communicate. So, Howie, last question for this episode. What is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? A part of a family. Feel like you're part of a family. I'm still in touch with a couple of the actors. Uh, and to connect with people. And to connect with people through the the good the wonderful reputation of Star Trek itself. People will come up to me and they'll recognize me. Uh, they'll talk to me. They'll ask for my autograph. Deaf people will come up to me and say, and they'll ask me questions about it. So. That, that the saga of Star Trek uh, has stuck with me all this time, even to this day. And also, I, I see enjoy seeing Patrick on TV, and uh, that brings back my memories. My my son uh, worked with him here in Seattle uh, uh, one day, and uh, it was a nice connection to be able to make. Howie, I want to thank you for joining me this week on the show. This was a really truly enlightening episode for me, and I hope all of my audience. Uh, I don't think too many people um, with without hearing disabilities get to have chats like this with people who do. So you've really taught me a lot today. 
Uh, I feel like this is something I wish I could have done sooner. Uh, just, yes. Thank you so much uh, for telling us just not just about your time on Star Trek, but about yourself uh, and a little bit more about the deaf community. I, I think that that's something we all should learn more about. And I'd like to check out some theater as well. That's just like what you've discussed today. So uh, again, I appreciate you just being willing to share so much of yourself today. Thank you. It really was my pleasure. Take care. Thank you so much, Al. We appreciate it. Uh, so long from me and Paul. Bye-bye. And that was our chat with Mr. Howie Siegel, who I want to express my sincere gratitude for being willing to do this show. I was a little afraid of doing this episode because, really, at first I was worried about how I would make it even happen, but then I realized I was just scared to have a conversation with a deaf person. I'm not ashamed to admit it anymore because it's something that I've really never been exposed to and something I never ever thought about. But Star Trek is about being inclusive and understanding new ways of life that you might not know about. In order to learn something that's unfamiliar to us, but normal to another person, we have to make first contact. And that's what I feel many of us did today. And that's what I feel I did today, along with a lot of other members who are watching this show today. So I'm thankful to Howie for being my first ever exposure to having a conversation with a deaf person. And I really feel like I've opened up to a whole new world of performing thanks to this episode, but not just performing, but learning more about a community I didn't really understand as much about previously. So I hope if you're hearing abled, you also feel the same way that I am right now. And thank you one more time to Paul Burt for interpreting on Howie's behalf. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Until next time, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you're in a position to financially support the show, please consider becoming a supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you're looking for direct links for any of these things, links will be right in the show notes. If you have any questions or comments for the show, or would like to suggest a guest, or discuss any sponsorship ideas with us, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Trek Untold and for continuing to support this show. I hope you'll come back next time to learn more stories about Star Trek and beyond. Until then, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and always remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the RageWorks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.